0: I didn't realize how much I had been trying to overcompensate for my characteristics as a black male in my work environment and not even realizing that these are the things that make me. Sometimes I have a, a, a tough exterior or a vivacious personality or a charming attitude. Those are the things that like make me and I shouldn't hide those. I should bring those with me into work. So I made a promise to myself while I was over there, when I came back to the States, I was never going to hide myself from anybody in my professional life again.
1: Welcome to the Early Career Moves Podcast, the show that highlights remarkable BIPOC young professionals killing it on their career journeys. I'm your host, Priscilla Esquivel Bolcha, Latinx career coach, corporate consultant, daughter of immigrants, and lover of breakfast tacos. Meet me for a coffee chat every Friday as we either dive into a special guest story or I'll share my own career gems. If you're a BIPOC professional feeling lost in your career or just need a dose of inspiration, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Early Career Moves Podcast. Today we have Corey Wallace on the show. Corey is a really good friend of mine from the MBA program, and I love the topic of this episode. We dig into not only Corey's journey in corporate America, you know, making the moves that he made, working abroad as an African American male, but also we talk about code switching at work and how exhausting it can be to always feel like you have to be on, to feel like maybe you need to blend in and maybe mute parts of yourself because you're the person who sticks out. And this can apply to anyone. It can to apply to women that are in predominantly very male spaces. It can apply to, you know, people of color. It can apply to folks with disabilities. It can apply to any group, any group that's marginalized that is not, not part of the majority, and who has to be overly aware of, you know, your specific circumstances how you stick out and there's pressure to try to blend in somehow and Corey's story is all about how one day he decided this was just not for him anymore he was not going to do it and he talks about what that was like and how working abroad in Europe ironically is what got him to the place of radical self-acceptance so can't wait to hear what you think love love this episode enjoy Hey, before we head into today's episode, I want to encourage you to follow us on Instagram at ECM Podcast. Also head over to ECMPodcast.com where you can get freebies, read the latest ECM blog post, and sign up for our monthly newsletter. And if you or someone you know is looking for one-on-one career coaching, you can sign up to work with me on my website. Lastly, if you're a big fan and supporter of the show, please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how we can reach other people. Okay, let's head into the show. Hey, everyone. I am so excited to have my dear friend, Corey Wallace, on today's show. Welcome, Corey.
0: Hey, Hey! thank you Priscilla for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure.
1: (laughs) Okay, so we are here to discuss, hear a little bit about your early career journey, where you've been along with your 20s and Mm -hmm. the lessons that you've learned along the way. So I would just love to hear a little bit about like where's home for you and what did you grow up? What was that experience like for you?
0: Oh, sure. So (laughs) I'm a Northeast baby. I grew up in between Philadelphia, New Jersey, North and South Jersey, and other parts of PA. I'm actually like a a military brat. So my father was in the Air Force, born in Hawaii. Um, Then we started relocating back to the States. And so really, I've never been stationary for more than about four or five years. Um, Wow.
1: Okay. So I know that you ended up going to Penn State, right? For college? Yes. Yes, I did. So how did you find out about Penn State? Was it pretty popular? And how did you end up choosing to go there?
0: My father went to Penn State. Actually, my mother and father met up there. She was only up there for about a year. But so my dad was always a big Penn State guy. He told me that if Penn State was doing this, it, at the time it was called Information Science Technology, Curriculum, that they were doing it. I had no desire to go to Penn State for real. It was uh, out the way. It was cold. It was expensive. And I was like really looking to, to go somewhere else. But I was doing these college tours around these black colleges and things like that. And Penn State invited me up. My mom forced me to go. And I found out real quick there's enough black students at Penn State for real small HBC.
1: Okay. So you found your way and adjusted to life at Penn State?
0: Found my way. They had an amazing. I.T. program. So that was like sponsored by like Lockheed Martin, just had a really good pipeline of candidates. And I was really into computers. I had spent my whole childhood just like tinkering and doing computers. And my grandmother was like working with the city, putting together a commission. To solve digital literacy in the hood. So I would always go with her when it was time to install computers in these laboratories, in these schools or wherever. And so they had the curriculum there and I also could live like a life there and it was a big enough environment to like reinvent myself and everything coming from the suburbs. So just made it work.
1: Yeah. So what does that mean to do IT or to study IT? What kind of classes were you taking?
0: So at the time we were taking classes that prepared you to work in like IT and infrastructure so database classes and and understanding programming but not actual programming the name of the pro- program was information sciences and technology so the way they groomed you was you had to have the business acumen to be able to talk to people that did not understand technical concepts, but then you had to have the technical acumen to be able to talk to the programmers. So if the business has a problem, how do you translate this into tech requirements? And if the technologies exist, how do you use this to solve a business problem? So a lot of stuff was just like, all right, we've got this cool cloud-based software. How can we use this to organize customer data and sell that to an ad agency or something like that.
1: And so when you graduated in 09, that was Mm -hmm. a really rough year to graduate from college. I graduated 2010. (laughs) So I remember being a junior and just hearing just terrible stories about the 09 graduating class. So Uh what was that like for you?
0: Chaotic. So I had a job offer from Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. I had interned there for two summers prior and really made a, a ton of connections with the people I needed. So I, it was like a really good look. And they were based out of about 45 minutes northeast of Philly. And so I, I was good. Wyeth was making me the offer. I took in a few other interviews and everything, but I, I felt pretty good about my chances at that company. So I shut everything else down in October. Fast forward to February, Wyeth got bought out and my job offer no longer existed. They got bought by wow. Pfizer. Like Everybody was getting laid. I was like, wait a second. I just mm-hmm. shut all these jobs down and now ain't nobody hiring. Let me call back everybody who <laughs> I rejected an offer from and see if it's still on the table. And the first, four, the first four I called, they was like, no. And um, I remember I was working for a school newspaper in a digital department. And I, I was like trying to figure out how do I craft this email to somebody. And like, Corey, you just got to tell them. So, I wrote this email up to this dude, Jeff Coletta at British Aerospace Engineering BA Systems. And he was like, yeah, we still got the job. It was an engineering leadership development program. We said, we still have the job, but if we offer to you, you have to sign today." Okay, lollygagging with any of this. So (laughs) signed the paper, sent it back, told Wyatt, you know, uh, thanks, but I'm not going to risk my career being like bought out in the first month, which was an interesting combo. And I got ready for work as a systems engineer in Wayne, New Jersey. It was the most random thing ever.
1: Wow. So you got really lucky to an extent.
0: I got super lucky. And the crazy part is for selling, I applied for engineering. Job and I'm not an engineer. That was like the scariest thing is because you know, imposter syndrome and illusion of inclusion. Like I literally had to walk into a British engineering environment that's like a multi-billion dollar company that's got all the nerds in the world in there and pretend to be an engineer for the first two years of his job.
1: Oh my God. Yeah. So okay, so a systems engineer requires yes. some kind of engineering background.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it requires like complex knowledge of either engineering systems or, or communication systems or like how how like microengineering works. So what kind of waveforms come out of your radios or out of your cell phones that go into these satellite systems and orthogonal frequency directional antennas and stuff like that and like all these crazy like concepts that I've never even thought twice about. And now we're designing like radio frequency systems that have to be able to communicate securely between air, land and sea because it's going to troops overseas. And we're in the middle of a war and there's sequestration happening and companies are getting bought out left and right. And if our products don't perform, people are dying. And on top of that, people are getting laid off and you're working on these complex devices that got to work in like negative 30 degree weather. It was an interesting time. That was a very interesting time. So systems engineering works in between your computer engineers, your mechanical engineers, your electrical engineers. It has to translate all that stuff between each other so they can all function as a system. It doesn't really dive deep into any of those particular engineering concepts.
1: And so how did you handle those first months on the job when you were like, "I don't know what I'm doing?" It's scary.
0: It, it, it was rough, it was rough. and it was a leadership program, so we had night school on top of that on some engineering management stuff, which was equally as tough. And at the same time, you couldn't really tell anybody that you don't know what you're doing because this is your job. It was a lot of, a lot of studying, Priscilla, a lot of just studying concepts and trying to understand the program I was working on what's called win T and trying to understand what the warfighter was and understanding like who you could talk to about some of these concepts and what kind of proposals we were putting together, what our differentiating factors were between our product and like a Lockheed Martin or L3 Communications and what wave bands some of these radios were supposed to work on and just like being a sponge and talking to all of these people in this environment. Engineers are introverts by trade. Once you get them going, they go. And so understanding that and at the same time, using my night school curriculum, trying to transpose that over some of the stuff I was learning. That was really how I did it. And a lot of my class that I came in with within this program, just leaning on them and starting to realize that they didn't have it all either. And some of these things are just so big that you have to utilize your team to really, um, Identify where we can help each other out at.
1: And so, this company is headquartered in London. So, did you get to travel there, or or what was that like? I
0: did. About five or six years into my um, tenure with British Aerospace, I got transferred out to the UK while I was waiting on my security clearance documents to uh, clear. And the city I was in was Rochester, United Kingdom. Know anything about Rochester? No, I don't. Not much to know. It's the home of Charles Dickens and his blind cat and something like that. And it's got one traffic light across the whole town. And it's 45 minutes east of London. And so I'm sitting here thinking like 45 minutes east of London, that's like 45 minutes west of New York City. That's a completely livable situation. Very wrong. With England being so narrow, it's, I think, four hours coast to coast. The concept of driving from one side to another, it's like... A four-hour drive is the equivalent of New York to California over here. So it's unheard of. So Driving anywhere over 20 minutes, it's like bonkers to them. And so hmm. the whole lifestyle out there is just different. And I'm in rural England where they've never met a Black person before or a Black American, for that matter, and yeah. just soaking up the culture and, and trying to just understand the people and understand the... This is my first time in a first world country abroad, and like it's a completely different set of circumstances. But more importantly, it was my first time meeting like other black people, not just black Americans and the Ugandans and the Nigerians and the Ethiopians, and like everybody. It wasn't just black anymore. Even like the the white people I worked with out there, it was the Irish and the Scottish and the Italians, and they all just had different mannerisms about each other that everybody seemed very familiar with. And I, I, to that point in my life, I must've been like 25. I just considered people, white people, black people, black people. I didn't really even dove into the nuances between an Italian and a Scottish person. They were so well known over there just about owning their characteristics that it translated into the work environment because the Germans are very efficient. The Italians have this quality and the Irish, they're really good drinkers. And you know they brought that with them to work. And I didn't really, I didn't know you could do that as a man or as a person. I didn't know you can bring your flaws or characteristics that you typically would be frowned upon to work and not be judged for it. I didn't realize how much I had been trying to overcompensate for my characteristics as a black male in my work environment and not even realizing that these are the things that make me. Sometimes I have a, a, a tough exterior or a vivacious personality or you know, charming attitude. Those are the things that like make me, and I shouldn't hide those. I should bring those with me to work. So if it involves me like not having to tell everybody good morning because like I'm disarming the audience and stuff like that, just going to the office and wake up at my own time, this might play a benefit in my career moving forward. So I made a promise to myself while I was over there, when I came back to the States, I was never going to hide myself from anybody in my professional life.
1: I think that's really powerful because minorities in the US, when we are in the workplace, especially corporate environments, I would say, there is a tendency to want to mute parts of ourselves
0: mm-hmm. and
1: feeling like we have to mute parts of ourselves because how do you survive? There's already so many microaggressions that are made against Black people, Latinx people, etc. And so right. you're like, I just want to fly under the radar. But that's cool that you were able to change that paradigm in your mind.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, it, and so even on top of that, Priscilla, you know, that's a, it's a coping mechanism to try to mute ourselves. And then it's also taught. My father is a, a U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant. I also worked for like the U.S. Postal Service, federal stuff. He's probably one of the most accomplished males I know. And he taught me that. Some of the women I have in my life, like I've learned those behaviors. So, and there's a fear that if you be yourself, that you're not going to be able to to have those roles or be in those positions of power. The they're going to hold it against you, and you work so hard for these things, these professional accomplishments and stuff that you want to risk it by as something as frivolous as being yourself, but that's the most important thing out there. You think about how much energy you spend at work and around those people and trying to go establish yourself using that much energy to not be you or create these circumstances in your life where I got to go be sensitive to my environment for 50 hours out of my week. That's terrible. It's a a terrible trade-off and it's something that like is a very difficult mental hurdle to overcome and take some like conditions to your audience, because it's definitely easier to go in there and mute yourself because nobody will notice the difference if they don't know you.
1: Wow. Yeah. And so for my listeners, I really want mm-hmm. to point people to check out Harvard Business Review article called The Cost of Code Switching, because that article, and I think you and I read it together in that diversity class we took in business school together. But mm-hmm. the, the psychological toll that code switching takes on minorities is significant. And (laughs) it's unfair. It's like, why do we have to be thinking about these things all the time.
0: Why do I have to, exactly, the, the cold fishing? why do I have to be thinking about these things all the time? Why can't I have an honest conversation about my likes and dislikes? Why do I have to not order the fried chicken if it's at the menu, at this restaurant we're going to, but there's nothing else on the menu but this chicken? <laughs> yes, I want the Kung Pao chicken, but I don't want to be that black guy today. Yes, I listen to <laughs> rap music, but I don't want to have to, it's things like that, just it's always mm-hmm. on, it's always there, and there are just so many examples. I know so many black women that run to wear their hair certain ways, Mm -hmm. work for these companies and oh no, I don't want to, so I'm gonna, you know, treat and condition my hair all the time, even though it's not healthy for and just people that are like actual, like expressive individuals, but are, you know, lack lack the security where they think they're gonna be judged and ran out the building for it. These are the things. There's so many examples of those things that just like they're unhealthy.
1: No, I totally agree. And it's powerful because your perspective is uncommon. I don't think people talk enough about this. And I think oftentimes we just learn to accept the status quo, <laughs> but actually right. we can push the conversation and we can start to say, hey, I, I get to do whatever I want. I get to be myself.
0: I get to be myself. Exactly. And it's, it's, that shouldn't be a reward. <laughs> you know? I get to be myself. <laughs> the one thing I found out, Priscilla, and this is like... I, when I came back, I ran that play and I've had multiple roles since then. So when I first got some friction from my job when I came back and we ended up parting ways and I I, I was able to go and start fresh somewhere else and really just introduce myself as that person from the door. Oh, what I okay. found is my authenticity provides other people with the empowerment that they need to be themselves as well. It's almost like you broke the ice in your environment and it's liberating to other individuals who may have lacked the confidence to to bring their true self to work. It disarms the audience, it disarms the, the co-worker base. And it's, it's something, as I grow in leadership, I want to bring with me because I feel like that opens the doors for so many other young Black employees to be themselves and disarm the audience and make it okay to... Yeah, there's not a lot of professionals with dreads out here. That's There's a question. Why is that? It's just people don't wear dreads or it's because they don't wear dreads to work. And I feel once... They understand that these things are okay. It's not going to detract from your level of professionality. The way that you carry yourself and the, what you bring to the table, they're not mutually exclusive. Like, you you can be that person, and people need to see that, or else we're just going to end up creating these carbon copies of each other to fit the mold.
1: So, I'm curious when you were talking about disarming people and like being the first person to, to make a comment to, to get them comfortable, are you talking about like other people of color, or are you talking about white? People and what does that look like for
0: you? It's a little bit of both, Rassela. I'm 32 years old. I work in between two generations: the 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 50 plus generation, a 40 plus generation. That really is all the leadership in your organization, as well as all of your new employees: your, your 22 year old employees, your fresh out of college employees, your employees that you know are coming. This is their first. Work experience and the younger employees are looking for role models, they're looking for people that look like them in positions that they aspire to. Which I happen to be one of those individuals now. I'm setting an example, whether I like it or not. And then my older audience, they may have never seen young black male with X, Y, and Z characteristics that also are bringing these ideas to the table. So, in their minds, if they're sitting there in that boomer generation, I am a myth, they haven't seen me in mass communication. They haven't seen me in Mm. one-on-one interactions. They may have read about me at some point in time, but they've never actually worked with young Black male that has X, Y, and Z talents and carries himself in this mannerism. So I don't blame that generation for thinking it's not possible, but I Mm. would blame myself for not introducing that person to them because, you know, I've got 15 other people behind me that have a chance to really like actually be that person in the next generation and it's it's normalized it's not a foreign it's not we saw Corey do it before it's not abrasive it's not something that's going to ruin your culture it has these benefits we we're not scared of it
1: I love that that's so powerful so I want to hear a little bit about when you started to think about um, applying to business school and getting your MBA and mm-hmm. I know you were part of MLT so MLT, management leadership for tomorrow which is super selective. It's very hard to get in. I actually did not get in (laughs) when I applied. But tell us about what that was like, that whole journey.
0: Sure. So so MLT and business school in general was actually a product of my first girlfriend, who really was like one of the, the leaders in my life at a young age. And she was looking at... Business school and I didn't understand why she was making it had a job, was making like seventy thousand dollars and at the time I was like, Yo, you getting your money, what you what you gonna give up a salary for and go back to school? But she had seen (laughs) on CNN that this program MLT was getting people in business school for free. And so MLT had a reputation of I think 90% of the candidates that they turn out got partial to full scholarships to top 20 business schools. And Jessica went and she did it. I watched her firsthand go and get her full ride and blew me away. I didn't even know this was possible at the time. So I applied to MLT the first year I did not make it, but I came back the second year and I was selected. And I was at a point in my career where I knew I wanted to go to B school because I was in a place where I wanted to start taking charge and leading organizations instead of taking orders and executing them, and that was that engineering mindset versus that like business leader mindset. Like one of us is going to point where we're going and drive the car, and the rest of us are going to be like make sure that you know we have the engine that gets us there. And uh, I had worked in organizations that had less than stellar leadership before, and I knew I wanted to be able to lead in a direction, but I did not want to be a flawed leader. I didn't want to be somebody that couldn't figure out where the, the people were going. I wanted to be able to steer people in the right direction. And so I, I wanted to go to business school to really refine that and, and work with other future business leaders that had thoughts and strengths and, and could coach me and help me. But as I defined my leadership path and my leadership style and really like, you know, Help, help coach that out of me. And so Texas was a great opportunity because not only is it in Austin, which is a very tech heavy city, but the, the McComb School of Business is as transparent as it gets, like the, the building is all glass. And so everybody sees it, every move and has the ability to have a perspective of you and provide you feedback and, and, and help sh- form and shape you into the, the, the person that you want to become.
1: So- with the MBA, you have the opportunity to pivot into a lot of different things. So mm-hmm. when you were going in, what was your mindset in terms of what you wanted to do? And then tell us what you're doing now.
0: Excellent question. Um, so what I'm doing now, I, I work for DuPont on a technology transformation as they turn into a global Conglomerate, DuPont is a you know worldwide material uh, manufacturing company, and right now they're working on water pur- purification, but they were working on five G implementations before. But they're basically buying and selling a whole lot of companies uh, over the next ten years, and as a result, the IT foundation needs to be at a certain at a certain cadence so we can just start plugging and playing these companies, and you know taking them out like Legos instead of buying this company that's on a different version of SAP and we spent $3 million wiring it up and now we ate the margins. So I work in that technical transformation as a IT business leader. I came into the MBA knowing two things that I wanted to be back in Philadelphia and that I wanted to find a role that was going to pay me in my mid six figures, but wasn't going to take all of my time. I have a number of like side on business opportunities that, 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 Better suit my personality, or that you know, I find. But one of the things I do is um, I do currency trades. I trade, you know, Swiss francs and the European dollar and the Australian dollar versus the uh, Japanese yen and the British pound versus the U.S. dollar. Like that's I'm into money, and a lot of those charts and swing trades take a lot of attention just throughout your throughout your day and a lot of your emotional um bandwidth because I'm emotionally t- tied to my money, and um I knew. I wanted to continue that endeavor as a as a full-time employee, but what I didn't want to do was rely on net uh hustle to pay my mortgage or to pay my family's health insurance or to I didn't I don't want to rely on that to keep the lights on. But I, I also wanted to make sure that I was making time in my life to pursue that. So in my plan, I really couldn't take a job with a Google or a Deloitte because I couldn't afford to work eighty hours a week and still do those other things. I was gonna be burnt out and I don't know if I would find that reward the same way. So it was a little bit of a it was a strategic decision that I was hoping paid off. And now I'm in the opportunity I'm like training two other traders right now and working on like developing some accounts that are going to be able to trade on my family's behalf and stuff like that. But at the same time I'm bleeding on multi million dollar effort on its IT transformation and getting all the training and coaching and development from this awesome multinational <laughs> materials company which is great and I'm doing it from home
1: so I, I The reason why I asked you is because I think it's really important to talk about the option to dabble in different like jobs mm-hmm. and opportunities because you don't have to just have, like you were saying, like one job that just consumes everything from you, right? Like you can have hobbies that are also other income streams and side hustles and all kinds of things and hobbies. So I think it's worth noting that you went into business school being strategic about what does my time freedom look like?
0: Absolutely, yeah. I, that intention was the name of the game, and that I wanted something that was going to provide me with the time because those those external activities they they feed me, they they charge me, inspire me, inspire people around me, and I use that good energy to go inspire other people and stuff. You know, coming back to what we we're just talking about, just knowing yourself and knowing how you operate, it, it just allows you to just. Be very transparent with yourself about what your goals are, and not getting caught up in you know someone else's rat race or the intentions that an ancillary source has upon your lifestyle and your freedom. Right? It's this—we only get one of these things, so mm-hmm. you gotta try to make it work how how best you want.
1: This has been such an enriching conversation, Corey. Thank you, Thank you so, so much. much for being with us today.
0: Hey, I appreciate you Priscilla and you're doing a great job with this. I look forward to all of your projects in the future.
1: Hey, are you thinking about changing careers? Then you need to head over to my website, ecmpodcast.com, and sign up to get your free 20-page guide that I wrote with you in mind. I wrote this guide to help you change careers and get really clear on what it is that you want to do next. Career clarity is key to a career transition journey. All right, can't wait to hear what you think about it. Have a great week.